0: Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you doing?
1: Doing well, Ed. Hope you are.
0: Excellent. Well, it has been a busy week, hasn't it?
1: Wow, very. All kinds of things going on.
0: One big story that just broke uh, just a couple of days ago is the U.S. Supreme Court granting cert on an abortion case out of Mississippi. What do you think about that? i tell you,
1: it's it's interesting. As we discuss the granted cert, which for those who don't know is a discretionary review granted by the Supreme Court. In other words, they didn't have to hear the case. They chose to hear it based upon the votes of at least four justices. The granted cert as to only one issue in the case and that is um, whether or not all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. And I thought that was very interesting. My first thought was, given the Roberts court and what they've done and not done with regard to certain hot-button issues, um, I thought this is likely to be a reaffirmation of the Roe trimester structure. Then I thought maybe it was an effort to force the Roberts Court to in some way limit Roe as a means to push Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema to support killing um, the the filibuster such that the court could be packed. You know, now the more I think about it, I'm wondering if maybe maybe some of the um, pro-life forces aren't correct in saying that this is a, a signal by um, four justices that they do intend to limit uh, Roe for for reasons that are related to the pro-life position and not some ulterior motive to pack the court. But who knows? What do you think?
0: Well, of course, we know four justices had to agree for them to take the case, but we don't know which four.
1: And, and we don't know if it's more than four.
0: That's right. You know, That's right. We, um, so we don't know. We don't know. We can say that the the petition for writ of certiorari that was sent up had three issues in it they chose the issue about viability the reason that's a big deal is because the framework from Roe and from Casey is basically that states can't regulate after viability in this case the state of Mississippi is excuse me the state of Mississippi essentially banned abortions at the 15week point saying that's a viability benchmark I guess you could say so, the question that came down to whether it was a a ban or it was a, a regulation.
1: I think the lower court said if it if it's a if it's a ban, it's per se unconstitutional, and if it's a regulation, then the court has to consider the interests of the state in protecting and preserving life. But if it's pre viability, then no matter how those interests of the state are weighed. They can't. Out, it would be unconstitutional to ban abortions prior to viability. Sort of. I think that's what they said. You tell me if I'm wrong. it, it almost that's sounds what, a little that, circular, but, but
0: well, that's, that's my what reason. the Fifth Circuit, Court, right. the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said. And part of the reason is that when Mississippi passed this law in 2018, and one of their findings was that the state had a legitimate interest in protecting women's health. We actually have a little bit of audio from the governor signing that.
2: We're going to try to protect that child whenever we can. We think that this is showing the profound respect and desire of Mississippians to protect the sanctity of that very unborn life whenever possible.
0: And that was when the bill was signed. So when it got to court, of course, it was immediately taken to federal district court, which issued a temporary restraining order. Then it got to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit looked at it as a question of whether it banned or regulated, like you just said. And if it's a regulation, the state w- state's interest would have been considered. But if it's a ban, like you said, it was it's. Uh, According to the the Fifth Circuit, is completely unconstitutional. So they the the Supreme Court agreed to accept it now on that one issue of uh, whether all pre-viability prohibitions are unconstitutional.
1: Did it? And, and I didn't pay this much attention to the to the history. Did the Fifth Circuit rule based on the granting of the TRO? Was that was that appealed? And that's what they were deciding, or did did the district court actually make a final decision? And then it was appealed to the Fifth
0: Circuit. No, it was just on the TRO, and the plaintiffs had made a motion to limit discovery. So it was a pr- procedurally, it was just on a temporary restraining order preventing the law from going into effect, and that discovery issue—that was all that was before the Fifth Circuit at that point. Now, one interesting thing is Politico reported that the case was discussed at least a dozen times in conference before a decision was made to accept it.
1: I saw that. Does that? Do you think that means that they had it was discussed at twelve conferences? That's the way I took it.
0: That's the way I read it, also.
1: Wow, that's
0: because they. Now that you know, doesn't mean it came up for a vote. It just means know. they talked
1: about it, and in mm. some, it's at some length or, or not talked about the case, and, and but that's t- twelve because they have one conference a week, right?
0: I think that's generally correct.
1: Yeah. So, so that's that's a good long period of time that that case was kicked around up there.
0: But we'll see what that means. Uh, it yeah. certainly got. Uh, Lots of people up in arms. Actually, this question was asked at a White House news conference this week, and they took a very odd view, but I'll I'll let the listeners hear that. And the president and the vice president are devoted to ensuring that every American has access to health care, including reproductive health care, regardless of their income, zip code, race, health insurance status, or immigration status. As such, the president is committed to
2: codifying Roe, regardless of the unrelated, it's all related, but to the outcome of this case. Uh, Go
0: ahead. Um, And, of course, we could talk about this phrase health care and reproductive health care, and whether abortion on demand is really health care. But one interesting phrase from that is that the president wants to codify Roe. Yeah. And what that means is he wants it in federal law. At this point, it's a constitutional decision from the U.S. Supreme Court which overturned numerous state laws about abortion. It would be a good assumption that if they codified it, you would have federal law that uh, made it a a right.
1: Yeah. And and as part of codifying it, what he really wants to do is preempt abortion laws um, and and thus take them away from state legislatures and state courts and and make it a a totally a federal issue. And it, it is mainly a federal issue now as a result of the roe and Casey line of cases but you do have like in this instance the Mississippi legislature passing a law with regard to abortion it could have been lit, uh, litigated in the uh, in the Mississippi state courts but it wasn't but it could have been but if 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 uh, Biden preempts um, uh, abortion uh, law federally then it can't be heard in the state courts and it would have to be heard in the federal courts and or Congress and that's it and I think there's the, there's some issues with that from a constitutional perspective, although I wouldn't expect anyone in 2020 to necessarily let that stop them from doing or not doing anything. It is an interesting proposition, and I'm not sure that, and you, I'm sure, have some insight, and I'd like to know what it is, on how that would play out potentially in the Congress. You know, with, with the Joe Manchins and Kristen Sinema's of the world support Biden on that?
0: Well before we get to that I think it's important for people to understand that if the Supreme Court tomorrow were to reverse Roe versus Wade and all of the cases that came after that they would not guarantee abortion they would not limit abortion all they would say is that it is not in the federal constitution it's not in the US constitution that's right and what happened before Roe was that Every state made their own decision through their legislative process. Some states allowed abortion at different points. Some didn't allow it at all, etc. If Roe were reversed, it would all be tossed back to the fifty states for them to make a decision about that.
1: That's right, and and there is a lot of logic, uh, in my opinion, that would suggest that that is where it should be. That there is, there, you know, it, it takes a, a number of mental uh, leaps and twists and turns and flips to find a right of abortion in the U.S. Constitution. Um, and, And it strains logic to get there. And then when you get there, you have this unwieldy 1973 science that resulted in this difficult and bizarre, to put it mildly, road decision that's based upon a trimester structure that our friend from Minnesota sort of pulled out of the air. Uh, it was a compromise, as I understand the history, a compromise opinion uh, that he wrote simply because in that fashion, he could get five votes on the court. And, it, you know, it's uh, it's convoluted at best. Uh, and as I said, in my opinion, uh, and this is just my opinion, that there, there, there's, it's impossible to to reasonably read the U.S. Constitution and find a right to abortion there. You
0: no, know, the idea that our founders intended that within the uh, with any penumbra within the Constitution is just it's hard to imagine that.
1: Yeah. It's really now, the contrary other contrary to what to the Constitution, which is a written set of our our fundamental structure of government and beliefs. And it's written down. And, and you know, the, we have the 10th and, and 11th amendments, and this is not there. And yet, in spite of those amendments, it's said to be there uh, and not reserved for the states or the people. And I, I don't like that.
0: But back to the question you asked a moment ago, what would happen with an attempt to codify this, getting it through Congress? I think that, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that it would scramble the parties. Absolutely. It Historically, would. it would. Historically, there were Democrats, some who were more conservative than others. Uh, Some Republicans who are more liberal than others. I think the Democrats have done a good job of hammering out any quasi-conservative from their party. And I don't know how many Democrats are left in the U.S. Congress who are opposed to any form of abortion or any restrictions on abortion. But that would remain to be seen. There's certainly a couple of Republicans who probably would uh, at least be open to compromise.
1: Absolutely. but And you're exactly right. I do think it would return to the days of yore when you had uh, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, at least as it pertains to the issue of codifying Roe versus Wade. There are several Republicans that, I, that come to mind that would probably be in favor. Um, I think Joe Manchin would be hard-pressed um, to satisfy the voters of West Virginia if he supported that. I think there are probably some other Democrats at, play, at various places. And if the filibuster is in place, I don't know that they can get to 60 uh, in the Senate. But I don't be, know if uh, they
0: get to 50. Yeah, I mean, was right. 60.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, I, if
0: Manchin makes a decision to vote for a codification of Roe versus Wade, that's a signal that he doesn't intend on serving in office much longer.
1: That's right, because the, the, the voters of West Virginia would, would uh, in my opinion, uh, throw him out at the, the first opportunity
0: now he from was, a timeline perspective they granted this they granted cert they're going to hear the case but it won't be until next year their next term doesn't start till the first monday in october of 2021 so there won't be any oral arguments until after that
1: and and they have a uh, they can they can kick it along for a while and they set the they the court sets the 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 briefing schedule and also the the time for arguments and there'll be a slew of amicus briefs um, uh, on both sides, uh, in support and against this this provision in the law, and that'll be interesting to read those. Um, and for those who don't know it, the Supreme Court has a very user-friendly and and uh, and good website, and you can go on and, and read briefs and orders going back a good ways, and and certainly uh, as it relates to the current the current term and the cases pending.
0: You can even hear oral arguments now, not. Well, you you could hear them live this session, which is very unusual, but it's only been a few years that they even released the audio record. That's right. And it's, it's really interesting to hear that.
1: It, it is. Of course, that may be another show, but about televising the Supreme Court. I know C-SPAN is a big proponent.
0: And I'm sure. I don't think that'll ever happen. I
1: hope not. Not because it wouldn't be interesting, but because it would change the dynamic in the courtroom.
0: So what else we got that's going on this week? They had the Preakness. Did you watch that last weekend? I did.
1: Uh, I certainly did. And I was interested to hear uh, a lot of the commentary. I thought NBC did a good job of discussing the issue with Bob Baffert and the Kentucky Derby champion and that positive drug screen prior to the race. Uh, I found it interesting that Baffert declined the opportunity to come on and respond to uh, the comments of Mike Tirico, who is an outstanding sportscaster in my opinion, and then the two analysts that sat with him at the main table uh, about his situation and that of uh, Medina Spirit, um, and uh, I thought that was really, really interesting. That he had took some positions early on in the process that turned out to be untenable, changed his position, and then refused to come on and and respond to NBC's comments. The other interesting thing I thought was when they indicated the timeline for the second test results to come back.
0: I and hadn't heard this. Point it was from coming back. It's
1: like a minimum. I want to say at of six to eight weeks is kind of mm-hmm. what they expected, and it could take up to six months. They didn't really say why. They just said that's that's the timeline. I don't understand why, but I think we're in a holding pattern for a good long while. Certainly, I wouldn't expect the results back before the Belmont the uh, first weekend in June.
0: I think that. Well, and guess. I heard that Baffert is banned from New York. Did I hear that right? I think, I think you did.
1: I think you did. And so he, he will not, or uh, Medina Spirit will not be racing. And, and I guess he has, if he had any other horses he planned to, to run in the Belmont, they won't be running either.
0: Of course, we know we won't have a triple crown winner this year because Medina Spirit came in third at the Preakness.
1: And uh, I think we're back on the schedule now, or, or the, the, the tracks, where the Belmont is the longest race of the three. You know, they switched that up in the fall because they they got out of the rotation. And so they uh, maybe it was the Preakness, or maybe it was the Belmont, I don't remember which, but they shortened the race so that they would still be short, middle, and long. Um, in, in order, um, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, whether um, is it Rombauer? Am I saying that correctly?
0: That's from um,
1: right. Would would hold up at the longer uh, be- length in the Belmont? Because um, you know Medina Spirit started out well, and probably what two thirds, three quarters of the way through the Preakness,
0: it started looked, fading.
1: Yeah, looked looked good, and then all of a sudden, as you said, started fading, and here comes Rombauer. He was really pulling away there at the end, still running strong.
0: Yeah, so we'll, we'll see that in a few weeks. We'll see what happens.
1: And One of the things that happened this week, and I know you were on top of this, there was a decision from the United States Bankruptcy Court judge who was handling the NRA, National Rifle Association, uh, bankruptcy petition uh, in the state of New York.
0: Well, that's true. Now, they filed the and bank petition. They, they filed it in Texas.
1: Okay, I'm sorry.
0: Of course, the, the way it works, the NRA is uh, they're chartered in New York State. They are currently a target of the New York attorney general who's trying to put them out of business. So their plan was to file for bankruptcy. They filed that in Texas. They expected to dissolve themselves through the bankruptcy court and then reinstitute themselves as a Texas corporation, as a Texas entity. So they would kind of be away from the problems they have there and the 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 bankruptcy judge dismissed it. It's interesting to read his decision because he noted that, you know, normally debtors file bankruptcy when they are faced with a judgment that's going to make them insolvent or they can't pay their ongoing bills. But he said the threat against the NRA differs from this and that disillusion would not be a collateral effect of litigation, but the intended relief sought in the state's regulatory action. And what that means is he recognized that the NRA was using the bankruptcy process to try to get away from what he called a regular regulatory action by the attorney general. Uh, there was actually testimony during the bankruptcy case that they could pay all their bills and that there was no judgment against them that would render them insolvent. So it was dismissed. He said the uh, the existential threat facing the NRA is the, is the type of threat that the bankruptcy uh, code is not meant to protect against.
1: And uh, while I'm not a supporter of the Attorney General of the State of New York, I think that based on what you shared, the opinion of the bankruptcy court judge uh, has merit and it's logical. And I think, frankly, it it probably is the right decision under the law and the facts of this case.
0: It's going to be hard to appeal.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's a long opinion. I, I want to say 35 pages. Did I get that right?
0: No, I was going to say 38, but it's right, okay. right there.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a. I mean, he's certainly. Uh, Took a lot of time and and um, and put some effort into into his ruling.
0: What happens next is that uh, AG in in New York still going after the NRA. Now I disagree with that entirely.
1: And, and she stated that's her purpose is to put them out of business, uh, not to correct any uh, any wrongdoing or, or or that kind of thing, but to but to shut them down. And I should say us, because uh, full disclosure, I am a life member.
0: Did but, you know, the question is, what does this do to your membership? I don't, I don't know. I don't know.
1: It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right.
0: I get lots of fundraising emails from the NRA, and they don't mention this very often.
1: No, they always want to give you a knife or a hat or a, some kind of satchel, Yeah. Uh, but they don't mention the bankruptcy.
0: And also, are you following the debate on this H.R. 1?
1: I have to some extent, yes, sir. I know, I know you followed it more than I have because I think you've delved into some of the provisions of the law. in in some detail.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I I got a clip here from Ted Cruz, who testified before the Senate Rules Committee this week. And this is just a, a short summary of his thoughts on it.
2: Many of us are referring to this legislation as the Corrupt Politicians Act, because it would do. Senator Schumer talked about politicians picking their constituents, that's what this legislation does. This legislation is designed to ensure that Democrats never lose another election. This legislation would register millions of illegal aliens to vote, it is intended to do that. It is intended to do that because Democrats have made the decision that millions of illegal aliens voting are likely to vote for Democrats. This would register vast numbers of criminals and felons to vote. Because Democrats have made the decisions that criminals and felons are likely to vote for Democrats. This legislation strikes down virtually every voter integrity law adopted at the state level. Voter ID laws. Over 70% of Americans support voter ID laws. By the way, over 60% of African Americans in this country support voter ID laws. 29 states have voter ID laws on the books. What does this legislation do? Strikes them all down says it's illegal for any state to have a voter ID law. Ballot harvesting, 31 states prohibit ballot harvesting. Why? Because it is a corrupt practice where paid operatives handle the ballots of someone else and it has repeatedly led to instances of stealing votes. What does this bill do? It strikes down all 31 states' restrictions on ballot harvesting.
0: You know, what what Senator Cruz is talking about there when he calls it the Corrupt Politicians Act and the registration of felons and illegal aliens is that there's a provision in this bill for automatic voter registration if anyone has contact with government agencies. It's not limited to citizenship. It's not limited to parole status or or anything else. It would just sweep all of those people from a government database into registration. Yeah, and that's not even the most radical part of the bill. It basically federalizes all election laws, provides for same-day voter registration, huge campaign payouts from the federal government to campaigns.
1: And that's your money, taxpayer dollars.
0: Mandates 15 days of early voting, bans voter ID, requires restoration of felons voting. And it also, if anyone wants to challenge H.R. 1 in court, they have to file that challenge in the District Court of the District of Columbia. So. It, that makes it a burden for people to even challenge the law.
1: Yeah, the Democrats are, for the most part, the king of, of the nationalization of a of an injunction by a district court judge. They seem to like to go to Hawaii to get such, uh, but they want to force their, the enemies of their pet laws to come to D.C. Uh, and not sue in their home districts. And, you know, they do that because they can, because it's power. And it's all about... As, he, as Senator Cruz said, perpetuating uh, their uh, their majority status in the Congress and their hold on the presidency, and thus their ability to appoint the majority of the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, during the Trump administration, so many laws were challenged uh, in Hawaii. Someone I don't remember who referred to it as that rock in the Pacific.
1: <laughs> I don't remember either, but that's right. Um, and and there were efforts uh, underway. Um, I, I guess as they ended with the ending of the, of the last Congress, but to, to prohibit uh, the national injunction and say that, you know, that injunction from a United States District Court judge would apply only in that judicial district um, and not nationally. Because, you, know, you know, what they do is they go find a judge they know will agree with them, file in his or her court, and then get an injunction that's ostensibly enforceable all over the country and, and get their way pending an outcome of the case.
0: We'll, we'll see what happens to H.R. 1 at this point. Yeah, as long as the filibuster remains intact, it will not pass the Senate.
1: Interestingly, and I wanted to get your take on this, um,
0: th- there's an ethics
1: code in that for the Supreme Court, and, and there's not one currently, as I understand it. It is up to the justices' own set of beliefs and, and understanding as to when they individually should um, recuse themselves, Correct. That's correct. And, and that's really what this ethics code is, is dealing with. It's not dealing with conflicts of interest or uh, financial disclosures and things like that. It, it rather is is dealing with what they're trying to do is is box a justice in, namely Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, based on things they said or didn't say or things they did or didn't do in a prior job, but things they said or didn't say at their uh, confirmation hearings to prevent them from ruling on that, that same issue should it come before the court. Is that not – am I am I correct that's in that the, belief?
0: That's the way I understand it. Now, the problem, or at least one of the problems with it, is that the Supreme Court is a co-equal branch of government. That's right. Uh, the The way the Constitution sets up our government is you know, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and they're co-equal. None are more powerful than the other. So, you know, how one is going to impose an ethics code, which is not in the U.S. Constitution, on another branch of government, it remains to be seen. And of course, the Supreme Court has the authority to strike down laws as unconstitutional. So, not even clear how that would uh, would play out.
1: That's right, and and you're right. I mean, the president can affect the Supreme Court in that he or she can appoint a justice to an open seat. The Congress can appropriate funds for the uh, judiciary and and the uh, uh, the judges and the other employees. As we all know from uh, elementary school social studies, the salary of a sitting justice cannot be uh, reduced by a Congress, and they sit for life, um, and then they confirm a presidential appointment. And the Congress, according to the Constitution, can determine the number of associate justices of the Supreme Court and the number of district court judges and courts of appeal judges. But other than that, they can't they have no control over the court, and they can't make the court do or not do anything uh, in that regard. But this, as you said, would give Congress, in my opinion, autonomy over the court in the sense that they are regulating the activities and the conduct of the justices who are constitutional officers. And that would seem to be contrary to the express provisions of the, of the founders.
0: Yeah, I think it clearly is.
1: So that'll be interesting to keep an eye on.
0: Now, of course, in the Mideast, fighting continues between Israel and Hamas, and the uh, Biden administration seems to be cracking now. How long did they hold out? A week? And already pushing for de-escalation?
1: It seems as though the the Europeans are becoming more vocal in their position with regard to uh, being pro-Palestinian and with regard, in my opinion, to being anti-Israeli. I noticed yesterday, I think it was, that... um, the BLM faction in this country came out in support of the Palestinians um, and aligned themselves therewith. And, uh, you know, you wonder, uh, are the Israelis going to be able to withstand the political pressure exerted by the Biden administration and the other uh, the other countries, particularly those in Europe? My thought is they'll hold out longer than most, but I don't know that they'll hold out as as long as they need to.
0: Well, what's interesting is that one week ago, we were having a conversation about this topic, and you said that perhaps the problem is that the U.S. has been involved too much and always put, um, my words, not yours, restraints on the Israeli government so that they never finished cleaning out the problem.
1: Well, that's a good choice of words. You're right, and I did say that, and I believe that. I I, I noticed, uh, I I guess it was over the weekend, um, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, sort of gave a head fake through the international media to Hamas by uh, letting slip, leaking, if you will, that ground forces were engaging on the uh, inside Gaza, knowing that that would force the Hamas, that would force Hamas personnel into their underground bunkers and tunnels. And that's exactly what it did, and they proceeded to, destroy a number of those and thus, uh, as they say, neutralize Hamas fighters with less risk to civilians. And uh, I thought that was interesting and and well played. And then uh, this whole issue of the uh, destruction of the AP and Al Jazeera building, and that sort of blew up in the face of the AP. There were a number of those uh, reporters from AP and higher ups at AP and also other members of the national media who were uh, expressing shock and outrage that the IDF would bomb that building and that they had no idea that Hamas was there. And then, it, um, as they say on the in the Twitter world, a number of folks with the receipts came forward with those receipts and showed where in the past it became sort of obvious that the AP was quite aware uh, that Hamas was in the building. And uh, immediately upon the uh, those things making the media, we stopped hearing about that.
0: You know, I had not heard that actually myself. So that's interesting. the uh, The Israelis claimed that Hamas was operating out of that same building that the AP had headquarters in.
1: That's right. the The, the story is that um, Hamas was in the bottom portion of the building in the basement, and that there it was known for for years that there were well dressed, custom tailored suits on guards at the floor where you couldn't go below all military-looking folks, um, males in good shape um, physically, who were armed um, and would not allow folks to go past those points. And um, and then there was other evidence um, that, that Hamas was there and that the AP was aware of it, but um, they didn't acknowledge that at first. I know that Julie Pace, who Most people will recognize as a I don't know if she still is, but she was a longtime Fox News contributor. She's the D.C. uh, bureau chief for AP, as I understand it. And she was all over Twitter on Saturday, just outraged that this would happen. And then, as I said, the receipts came out and she, quite frankly, looked rather foolish.
0: Radio Um, silence. Yeah.
1: And and of course, didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I apologize. Just radio silence, you know, Um, and uh, that's uh, that's fairly typical. Of uh, some in our world.
0: Anyway, big situation going on in the Middle East. Yes.
1: Uh, 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 and you and I talked about this earlier today. The Pakistani was it Speaker of the House kind of person, or
0: uh, someone within their their legislative body? Yeah. I don't I don't know enough about it to answer that.
1: Was was calling for jihad against Israel? Of course, Pakistan is a is a nuclear powered country, and uh, I noticed, and because you and I talked about this last week, there um, there seems to be, you know, looking on social media and so forth, a great deal of support from not only the Indian government but particularly from Indian uh, nationals, individuals expressing support for the Israelis and the IDF and their efforts to root out terrorism and keep keep their they're safe.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting correlation. I don't really understand that.
1: And I'm, not, I'm not sure about that either. It may be that uh, because they don't get along with Pakistan, and if Pakistan doesn't like Israel, they you know, right. the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. But, but I found it interesting.
0: So that's just a taste of what's happened this week. Uh, looking forward, kind of what's on your radar for the next week?
1: Well, Israel, obviously. Uh, there was another no-hitter last night, uh, so mm-hmm. maybe we'll have a, yet another.
0: I think Did for, you see the story I sent you today? Uh this was from Axios. They they said five no-hitters through May 18th matches 1917 for the most in baseball history.
1: Yeah. And does that include the Bumgarner seven-inning no-hitter in the 5 or would that be the sixth?
0: I don't know. I, I don't think know. that would be the sixth. Um so maybe it's only nine-inning no-hitters.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. But uh and then uh yesterday the district attorney in Pasco County Issued his, his decision that um, the shooting of Andre Brown was justified based upon the videotape, which showed, according to the district attorney, I've not seen it, but according to him, it showed Mr. Brown uh, actually hitting officers on two occasions prior to uh, being shot at. And that was, according to him, the basis upon which law enforcement engaged him with deadly force. And so they will not be charged, at least in the state court at this point.
0: I have seen the body cam footage. Oh, you have? Uh, and it's uh, it's it's difficult to watch, not necessarily because it's graphic, but just because it's bouncing around and yeah. it's happening very quickly. You do see uh, Mr. Brown driving. Um, it, it's difficult to tell the extent of contact with the officers, but mm-hmm. they, you can see that something happened. You just can't really tell very clearly what it was before wow. shots were. Now, take a look at that video because the other aspect I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on it next week has to do with where the officers were in relation to the vehicle when they took the shots.
1: Right.
0: Not that they wasn't justified from their perspective. It just seemed like that from a, from a discipline a fire discipline perspective and a training perspective that maybe it wasn't, the best decision
1: almost a circular that that, firing squad kind of thing, uh,
0: yeah. It, it looked a little, um, uh, a little risky to me, not to mention the other homes in the area, yeah, yeah. Um, and didn't that, one of the that, bullets go
1: uh, take out a, uh, a light beside a front door or something on a, one of those neighbors' homes?
0: I, I don't know, I didn't hear that, but I it wouldn't surprise right. me having seen it.
1: That's interesting. I, I look forward to seeing that because it sounds like. The officers were kind of circled around the car, and then they started shooting. And, of course, you know, apparently when one shot, a number shot, Um, not all, uh, but but most of them, they are shot. So, you you know, it's almost like you're shooting at each other, which is what you're describing. What else you got your eyes on?
0: Well, you know, the only other thing I had on my list that I was going to mention is a quote I came across this week because one of our first shows, one of our first episodes was about Biden's Court Packing Commission. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, they had their first meeting today. It's a virtual or Zoom meeting that they had to start talking about this. But there was a quote that came out from the vice president. She said it on May 4th about El Salvador because the National Assembly in El Salvador, not just the president, but the National Assembly, dismissed five justices on their court and then the president and the attorney general replaced them. And so her quote was, Just this weekend we learned that the Salvadoran, Salvadoran parliament moved to undermine the nation's highest court an independent judiciary is critical to a healthy democracy and a strong economy. End quote. An independent judiciary is critical to a healthy democracy and a strong economy. Apparently that applies in El Salvador, but not in the United States, according to the Biden-Harris administration.
1: Exactly. Hypocrisy, The name is Kamala.
0: Yeah. So, that's about it for today.
1: I think we have a... um busy week ahead and we'll sure we'll have lots to talk about in the future next week
0: thanks for tuning in for another episode of the let's think about that podcast you can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com if you've enjoyed this episode please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review and tell your friends about us thanks